Our next speaker is Jeffrey Bradshaw. And Jeffrey Bradshaw has a PhD in cognitive science from the University of Washington. He's been the recipient of several awards and patents, and he's done lots of advising and such. He's probably best well-known in the church for his detailed commentaries on the Book of Moses and Genesis 1 through 11 and on temple themes through the scriptures. He served as a missionary in France, and with that, I'll turn the time over to Jeff Bradshaw. Thank you, Scott, and thank you all, and it's good to be here. Um, it's, it's been a while since I've been able to be here in person. We were gone for a few years out of the country and then uh, uh, moved to Idaho, so we're a little closer, but uh, I, if um, I haven't said hello to you yet and, and you want to say hello, I hope I can catch you later. Um, the title of my presentation is... Hello? Okay. There we are. Okay. There we are. Since Hugh Nibley, remarkable new findings on Enoch and the gathering of Zion. And this is something that uh, we talked about uh, sort of doing today. Uh, you, you heard Kirk Magleby's uh, wonderful talk this morning, and and uh, Scott fortunately wanted to, uh, like, like others of us did, to honor him today. Um, we... Um, like the presentation we heard from Kirk, uh, that my purpose is also to commemorate Hugh Nibley on the occasion of his 111th year since his birth. I will first share some of the ways he's being commemorated, making his life, and uh, in, in, commemorated in word, making his life and work better known to a new generation. Then I'll talk at great length about our efforts to remember him indeed through building on lines of research that he began. So let me go ahead and, and talk about uh, 2021 is really a landmark year uh, for publishing at the Interpreter Foundation, for which uh, I thank Dan and Dan Peterson, the members of the board. Uh, there's four books in print so far this year and four more to come. And we hope you're, you'll take a look at them in the fair uh, bookstore and back at the table with Dan and Debbie. A good share of these books, I should mention, including Hugh Nibley Observed or Joint Projects with our sister organizations, Book of Mormon Central and FAIR. As uh, Scott mentioned, we do a lot of fun things together and are mutually supportive of everyone's aspirations. Hugh Nibley Observed provides a more full account of the story behind his words and works, including not only scholarly assessments, but also personal perspectives from family and friends. And a lot of uh, Nibley folklore, thanks to Jane Brady especially. For many of you who have never read anything uh, by Nibley, we hope that this will incentivize them to read some of his own works. And I need to mention that the book is available in inexpensive soft cover as well as hard cover in the store and digital and audio versions. We kind of went all out for this one, and it's doing quite well, but we want everyone to be aware of it. So um, there's the cover. Um, we also um, wanted to um, be able to um, hold on to be able to introduce have an easier introduction to people to Hugh Nibley than just reading, and so we created a series of blog pod, pod, blog posts, pod, podcasts, twenty three YouTube videos on the life and work of Hugh Nibley, and we've also posted a new version of the wonderful biographical film Faith of an Observer that now not only be in better quality than what was out there before, but has complete subtitles, which is great when Nibley starts to mumble, yeah, which is most of the time. 
or go in some other language and you can't tell if it's mumbling or some other language. Here is something cool, though. All those media resources are now all in one place. Uh, you can find them, of course, on YouTube, on Doctrine and Covenant Central, on the FAIR site, and other places. But today I'm here to, pub- to announce a public launch of the complete bibliography of Hugh Nibley, which is, of course, a play on the complete works of Hugh Nibley. And our aspiration, not our reality quite, is to put out uh, everything that he's that we can get our hands on both published and unpublished and to have free downloadable content wherever we can. We haven't yet gotten a complete agreement to do that with some of the uh, commercial content, but in that case, you could actually go to links there and uh, and go right to the purchase area for, for anything that's uh, uh, cost. Um, so there's going to be hundreds of more things in the future. I think there's something like 1,400, more than 1,400 separate items plus at least probably half of them or more have some kind of content or sometimes multiple forms of content. So check it out. So there's a bunch of things honoring the words of Hugh Nibley. Um, The most meaningful way to honor him, though, uh, like anyone else, is indeed uh, we're building on the research that he started, and that's somewhat the theme of this talk, although I do want to point to a couple other things first. Um, Nibley, as you know, wrote profusely, uh, in response to critics of the prophet Joseph Smith. So we decided to sponsor, and again, this is a joint uh, uh, um, event, set of events with our sister organizations, a set of virtual firesides this year featuring new research on misunderstood and sometimes controversial events and teachings from the last few years of Joseph Smith's life. Building on what Brittany said, um, Barbara Morgan Gardner, as you can see, is going to be also giving a talk on eternal and plural marriage and lots of other wonderful topics. And I don't want to forget that uh, the wonderful Witnesses film with some additional great new content, including Undaunted Witnesses of the Book of Mormon, which is going to appear not too long from now, and then dozens of YouTube videos, short YouTube videos that are going to be available for everybody. So please check it out. Dan and Debbie can give you all the details. Now... Um, another thing that we're doing to sort of honor him indeed is um, to remedy the past neglect of serious study on the book of Moses. Harold Bloom, the famous literary clerk, critic, called them the most, um, now I'm trying to think his word, but it was definitely neglected was in there. Uh, the most wonderful and neglected is what I want to say, books of Mormon scripture, and I think that's true. Nibley said, I like this, that if we really understood the treasures the book of Moses contained, it would, quote, put to rest the silly arguments about who really wrote the book of Mormon, for whoever produced the book of Moses would have been even a greater genius, end of quote. In honor of Hugh Nibley, we sponsored two conferences applying serious scholarship to the evidence of ancient threads in the book of Moses, and now have published a two-volume work, more than 1,300 pages, and now we have actually some proof copies in. The soft covers are ready for sale, um, digital Kindle versions for $9.99 per volume, and PDF, if you prefer that, um, are now, now ready. Um, Elder Bruce C. Hafen pictured here with his companion Marie, who provided the keynote for the first uh, conference, beautifully summarized our consensus as a conference when he said, the book of Mo- quote, the Book of Moses is an ancient temple text as well as the ideal scriptural context for the, a modern temple preparation course. So readers of this work are definitely going to find uh, abundant evidence for that truth, and we'd encourage you to check it out. Now, um, there's a couple other things that are going to appear before the end of the year. 
um, in time for the 2022 Come Follow Me curriculum. This particular book of scripture commentary is called The First Days and the Last Days. Not only the title, but also the beautiful cover with the angels from James C. Christensen, of bookends looking forward and backward to Christ's mission in the meridian of times, attests to Nibley's view that both the story of Enoch and the little apocalypse, as it's called, of Joseph Smith Matthew, quote from Nibley, belong together in the same book. So now they're together not only in the scriptures in the same book, but together in the same volume of commentary. That will be coming out later this fall. Now, uh, one more. Finally, we come to the book that fit today, fits today's topic best. Here we see uh, the full context of what we know about the culture, geography, and characters of Enoch's time and story assembled for the first time from um, ancient sources and modern scripture, not just into a commentary, but to a single unified story. I like to think of it as trying to apply the spirit of what Nibley did for the Book of Mormon and Lehi in the desert, but this time to the Book of Moses, really giving you a feel for the people and events there because we now have the data from the ancient world to do that, which is just amazing. And we might add ourselves that not only will we get a glimpse of that ancient world, but also a small uh, glimpse of ourselves because I believe, and I hope you'll be convinced of this when you dig into it more, that Enoch's story of the first days is also our story the story of the last days. I'll have a little bit more to say about that later on in the presentation. So, what is Nibley's best-known discovery about the Book of Moses and ancient Enoch texts? I could probably ask this audience. You could probably tell me. Um, but let me just say that um, the answer to this question could be found in a Dead Sea Scrolls text called the Book of Giants. So, what is the Book of Giants? Um, it is a, a book written in Aramaic and found among the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, as I mentioned. But besides being the most popular book at Qumran, even more popular than the better-known First Enoch. I was interested to, to find that out. We're learning a lot more about it lately. It also is purported to be the oldest extant Enoch manuscript found anywhere. It was first discovered in 1948 and first published in 1976. Uh, thus long after the Book of Moses was printed. And isn't it interesting that this oldest one is also the one that resembles it most? Other fragments in six different languages uh, have been found with the writings of Manny, uh, founder of the religious sect called Manichaeism. Most of these fragments were published in English in 1943. Thus, both these books weren't around in the time of Joseph Smith. Now, I wanted to just mention a couple things you should know about the book that mislead people. Um, before we get on to Nibley's discovery. First of all, there are no giants in the book of giants. The word actually is gibberim, which means something like mighty men, you know, from geber, which means, you know, a real manly man. Um, but in this case, one, somebody that's armed. According to Ida Froelich, there is no sign that these beings had a mixed human and animal nature. If, you know, you remember whose film was it, Darren whatever, that did that film on Noah and had these real crazy-looking uh, giant creatures that were supposed to be. Anyway, anyway, it's, they refers to their state, armed mighty men. The term does not involve the idea of a superhuman or gigantic statue. It's a problem because of the Greek translation. They translate it as giants. Now, uh, another thing to know is that even though you might see them, uh, if you're a Mesopotamian uh, person, as uh, cultural heroes, um, they really are portrayed, at least in uh, the kind of scriptures we tend to read, as warriors obsessed with hunting prowess and human bloodshed. Let's read this quote from Ron Hendel. He says, 
according to the Hebrew Bible, history comes out of Mesopotamia, but it was a dubious and shameful history. The ancient past in these stories offers implicit commentary on Mesopotamian civilization, an empire in the present, colored by transgression, hubris, and a desire to rebel. So actually, this is the most Mesopotamian, I would say, of all the Enoch books, down to having a couple of names from the Epic of Gilgamesh in it. That's where we'd expect to find Enoch going on his mission to call some of those ancient Mesopotamian peoples to repentance for their hubris and pride and hunting prowess uh, extremes. So that's what we need to know to put the book in context. Let's look at what Nibley found. He found... Uh, and he was, uh, when he was working heavily on his uh, Enoch the Prophet, Stranger, what was it called? Stranger in a Strange Land series back in 1976 and 77. He's dashing off an article of week. And his very last article, just in time, he got a copy of Millican Black's English translation of the Book of Giants. And he was thrilled. And you can still find his copy today where he circled, if you've got a good eye for it, the name Mahue. Uh, which is, in this case, in Aramaic. Um, so, um, the first thing you need to know about his discovery is that the, ver- the, the vowels in, um, in these uh, Semitic languages vary, but the consonants, well, the consonants also vary. So when we look at Mahaway, as he's usually transliterated in the Book of Giants, that is the same as Mahaija in the Book of Mormon and Mahuja. Uh, there are people who say it can't be the same because Mahaja or Mahuja have got one flavor of, uh, of Semitic H or another, but that's not the case because we, they, all they've got is an English H, right? Because all we have is an English translation. There are other people who say Mahawe can't be related to Mahujael in the book in the book of Genesis because it's got the wrong kind of H too. But there's a lot of um, going back and forth on your H's in, in those times, especially at Qumran. So. Take, treat those as equivalent, more or less, as Nibley did. Uh, here's what one uh, non-Latter-day Saint scholar concluded about those names. Quote, the name Mahawe Salvatore Sirio. The name Mahawe in the Book of Giants and the names Mahuja and Mahaija in the Book of Moses represent the strongest similarity between the Latter-day Saint revelations on Enoch and the pseudepigraphal books of Enoch, specifically the Book of Giants. So there's uh, the, probably the most famous uh, discovery uh, uh, Nibley made on the Book of Moses. And that caught the attention not only of Surio, but much earlier, the co-editor of the first translation of uh, the um, tra- uh, English translation of the Book of Giants, Matthew Black. And there's a great chapter by um, Gordon Thomason and Hugh Nibley Observed about that, where it's published in full, as well as uh, a great video out there in the media section on Hugh Nibley. So, how have Nibley's findings held up on time? Well, we won't go into details here, but very well overall. And later scholars have pretty much just worked and worked on his footnotes, taking advantage of new textual findings of different sorts to um, uh, be able to cross T's and dot H's, I'll say, since it's Aramaic. Um, what additional ever uh, what things have been made, discoveries have been made? Well, we're only going to get into a small sampling, but there's hundreds of pages out there, especially in here, and uh, a lot on the Interpreter website in addition, and a lot in Book of Mormon Central um, uh, Book of Moses essays in addition that you can uh, read more about. But let me think about just three major take-home points where we're find- making progress based on Nibley's foundation. What is in the character names and roles uh, in the book? Whereas 
uh, Nibley mainly focused on Mahaway or Mahaija in the Book of Moses case. Um, now work is starting to go forward on all the names and roles in there. Now, the interesting thing about all the names, and the and Book of Giants is one of the only, well, it's pretty much the only um, uh, book of ancient Enoch text that has names for the Gibberim. I was going to qualify it. The Watchers have names in First Enoch, but not for the Gibberim. So it's kind of unique that way. But it turns out, just to make a long story short, you can read about elsewhere, that these two names, the, the only two names are in the Book of Moses, Mahaway or Mahijah and Enoch, are the only two names that really stand up to historical scrutiny as being plausibly historical, which is kind of interesting because there's 20 or so names to choose from, so Joseph Smith chose well. Now, let's look at thematic resemblances between the Book of Giants and the Book of Moses Enoch account. And that gets better and better. Nibley was really on to something. He found a few interesting resemblances and pointed them out. Some of them were from other places, uh, of course, other uh, ancient Enoch books. But now textual discoveries have come up. and We're finding more and more in the Book of Giants. Let me just show you 18 major ones. And you can see each one is sourced in multiple ways from different fragments, different copies of um, the uh, Book of Giants text. Now, the interesting thing, uh, which you probably can't read the tiny print so well, is that um, Book of Giants scholar Lawrence Stukenbroek has tried to put these tiny fragments into some kind of story order, and uh, with some exceptions that are talked about in the, in the long papers, they're pretty much in the same order as what we find in the Book of Moses. And isn't that interesting? The interesting twists on that um, are, are really worth looking into. So not only are we finding lots of them, but in the same sequence. So the story for Book of Giants is getting better. Let me talk about just the number of resemblances. So if we say, compare the Book of Giants, and we say there's about 30 major resemblances, at least I've located, the number can fluctuate because you can break it up differently and people can dispute them. Let's say there's something on the order of 30 that are identified in some sources. Uh, 18 of those are found in the Book of Giants, and 12 are found in other Enoch texts. The other ones are significant, but it's um, pretty overwhelming to compare the Book of Giants against every other Enoch text. Because people like to make a heyday of First Enoch, that was the only one that could have been around at the time of Joseph Smith that was published, even though Joseph Smith likely never saw it. Now, of course, some of these thematic resemblances of Moses 6 and 7 to ancient Enoch texts are stronger and more specific than others. In other words, we might have some resemblances that are in the Enoch text, but they're also in the Bible or some Second Temple Judaic school um, uh, texts. So we wanted to see how many of those resemblances that we're pointing to are in other texts of that same period versus in Enoch texts. And overwhelmingly, the majority are the 20, and you can see the documentation in the papers, are specific. They're not found really uh, outside of Enoch texts themselves, which is kind of interesting. Now, how about uh, the storyline? We've already seen that there's more thematic resemblances in the Book of Giants than any other book. But how many of these resemblances are unique to BG? And if you look at this chart here, seven are only found in the Book of Giants. They're found nowhere else in the Enoch literature, the resemblances, those particular resemblances to the Book of Moses. So that's pretty striking. Now let's look at the storyline. And that's where it starts to get really interesting. And there were some great surprises here when I started to look into this more. We distinguish three types of elements. You see the gray ones, which are pretty much just the narrative core of the story. They keep the story moving along. They, they kind of carry the plot. The um, the, let's see, what is it? The, the blue ones 
are material that related to sacred teachings, heavenly encounters, or rituals. And three, the red, red items there are pretty much unique to Book of Giants. And so most people take them as being just some fun literary stuff that the redactors at some point threw in there to make the story more interesting. Most of those are about the addicts of a couple of, of uh, Giberim uh, twins named uh, Oya and Haya. Now, if you look at that too long, as, as I started to do, you begin to notice some patterns. Like, pretty much, all the core narrative elements in the Book of Moses shown in black are always found in some fashion in the Book of Giants, which is quite remarkable. And the sacred elements shown in blue are always left out of Book of Giants, though they are always found in at least one other Enoch text. Isn't that interesting? And then, you could take that a little bit further, uh, the BG unique themes are, of course, uh, found uh, only in the antics of uh, Oya and Haya, and they're really found nowhere else. So it makes people feel that they were just kind of made up to, to make the story more interesting. So if I was going to summarize that, I could say it just by means of colors, that Book of Giants is all black and red and no blue. In other words... Book of Giants contains hints of every narrative core story element found in the Book of Moses while containing none of its sacred stories in any detail, despite the fact that the missing sacred stories are all found in the missing forms elsewhere in the ancient Enoch literature. What do you make of this? To me, it sort of points to parallels in some of the ancient Christian texts like the Secret Gospel of Mark. Some of you heard of those or others. David Calabro has some great uh, material on some of those kind of things in his um, chapters on the book of Moses. That So one is tempted to speculate that BG, Book of Giants, originally inherited the same Enoch tradition as the book of Moses, but somewhere along the line, uh, not only did they add the, the funny stories about Oya and Haya, but also the sacred stories got left out. It's kind of interesting. We don't know enough about that yet to say more, but the pattern sure seems interesting. So let's um, now talk about two interesting aspects of the storyline. I'm going to move quickly here. One is Mahuja meets Enoch twice. And, uh, or Mahija, we can say. Those are equivalent names. So we'll say more about that in a minute. One of the fun things that's come out, uh, as I'm going to tell this story in New Discoveries, is something called the Manichaean Cosmology Painting. This is a wall-hanging from uh, the 14th or 15th century um, that goes back to Manichaeism back in there, you know, uh, around the turn of the millennium, um, uh, the first millennium, and survived in China and many nations of the East. But just a few years ago, they discovered that most of the themes in this painting are related to the story of Enoch. So we can actually use this Chinese painting with story that connects the stories back in the time of Christ to illustrate uh, our stories about Enoch. Kind of fun. Kind of fun to see uh, what they thought Enoch looked like. Um, so they often use these paintings to teach for teaching purposes. And in some cases, they fill in our gaps of knowledge, as we'll see. So most of the things take place, most of the action takes place that we're going to talk about today. There's more analysis elsewhere in the longer versions of chapters. Take place in this bottommost section, you can see the four main continents there. The worlds divide up into four quarters like we often see. In the middle 
is a, something that looks like a tree, but it's really a mountain. In Indian tradition, India, uh, East Indian tradition, it really co- corresponds to Mount Sumeru, and that's the sacred mountain. It's the sacred center, or the hiero, um, oh, hiero, uh, what did uh, Nibley call it? The hiero something center, hi- hierocentric center, hierocentric point, in essence. Um, and uh, you'll see then... Um, on the plane below, that's an earthly plane. On the plane above, it's a more of a heavenly plane. And here's what Enoch was thought to look like. He's there surrounded by four angels that are a little harder to see. The picture I had of that was not good enough to get a good resolution. Now, let's talk about the story. Um, in the book of Moses, um, Enoch preaches repentance to a people, the Gibberim, I think, out of what is called a book of remembrance in which their wicked deeds were written. In the ancient Enoch literature, the equivalent record of their deeds, out of which Enoch preaches, happens to be written on two tablets. The book of Moses tells us that Mahaiju was present for Enoch's teaching. That's uh, Moses 640. He simply, we don't know who he was or what he was doing there, but he just asked Enoch a question, tell us plainly who thou art and from whence thou comest. Although we don't have an explicit record of Mahaway's first visit in the book of Giants, some fragments refer to either a first journey or a second journey to go see Enoch. And so we're pretty clear he visited there twice. So here's where the book of Giants fills in the story of our, our uh, character from out of nowhere. At least it seems to fit consistently to me. Book of Giants has it the Mahaway was sent to Enoch by the prominent Gibberim to find out what all the fuss was about. Uh, his role is hinted at by his very name. Prominent biblical scholars suggest that his name might be explained on the basis of the Akkadian Mahu. There's other derivations, but this is the one I like best. And, uh, denoting a certain class of priests and seers. And what was the role of these seers? Among other things, the royal archives of the old Babylonian kingdom of Mari recount the comings and going of Mahu, as in Mahuja or Mahaja, as intermediaries and messengers bearing words of warning for the gods from the gods for the king, a role that evokes the role of Mahaway, who scholars have called, quote, the messenger par excellence of the Gibberim in the Book of Giants Enoch tradition, end of quote. Hunibly pointed out, back in 1976, without knowing about this, or at least writing about this derivation, this is exactly the role and the only role that Mahaja plays in the Book of Moses. He's a messenger, very consistent. Enoch's mission, oh, I didn't... Uh, Point out who that was. Oh no, no! Now I'm going to see that. So there we are. There's some of the one his listeners, uh, some of the gibberim. We're quite sure, based on other commentary on this painting, uh, and some of them are converted. The Book of Moses tells us, "Quote: As Enoch spoke for, spake forth the words of God, the people trembled and could not stand in his presence." Book of Giants similarly tells us that they prostrated and wept before him when he read to them out of the two tablets. Then we get to this strange figure. It's a lone figure kneeling repentantly on top of the only other mountain shown in the scene. You can see it kind of looks like the sacred mountain that left, and it's closer to the center than the other folks who are kneeling and repenting, supposedly, in the upper right-hand corner. Um, so far as I'm aware, no Book of Giants scholar has yet attempted to identify this unique and highly prominent figure, but it seems to me that there's no better candidate that this is Mahuja or Mahaway, or Mahaija. And we'll uh, talk about that a little bit further because I think it's pretty interesting. Why would a repentant Mahaija or Mahaway be perched alone on a mountaintop? The interesting missing pieces come from the book of Moses, believe it or not. 
to answer this question, um, let's look at BG, where we first of all read that he uh, began to mount up in the air, Mahaway, to go on his, this is his second voyage to Enoch, uh, to, in the air like a strong winds and fly like an eagle to a distant paradisiacal place to meet Enoch, again a sacred mountain of some sort. Um, the corresponding description in the book of Moses is intriguing. We're told that Enoch, quote, stood upon the place when God spoke to him. And that reminded me of what Kent Brown uh, has frequently taught, that in biblical context, references to the place, uh, Hebrew makom or Greek topos, describe a special or sacred location. In an effort to strengthen his case that Joseph Smith simply borrowed the story of Mahaway's second journey from the Book of Giants, Salvatore Cerillo, non-Latter-day Saint scholar, comments, quote, The emphasis that Joseph Smith places on Mahaja's travel to Enoch is eerily similar to the account of Mahaway to Enoch in the Book of Giants, end of quote. However, Cerillo failed to notice that uh, there wasn't any textual dependence because Book of Giants wasn't around in Joseph Smith's day. But it is eerily similar, I'll grant him that. In our canonized version of the Book of Moses, and see that leftmost column, um, the, uh, we read that the place is named Mahuja, which most people take as a variant on Mahaja. There's more that could be said, but we won't say it all here. But significantly, in the original dictation manuscript of Joseph Smith, called OT1, Mahuja is not a place name, but rather a personal name. The original manuscript implies that Mahuja and Enoch prayed together in the place before Enoch ascended to Mount Simeon to be transfigured. In the original location, this is how it reads, as you see on the left, Mahuja and I cried unto the Lord, seeming to imply that Mahuja was initially an active participant in what transpired on the mount where they were praying at the time. Interestingly enough, there's also the idea that he received, he went so far as to receive his new name from Mahaja to Mahuja in that place, just as Abram went to Abraham in uh, similar covenant circumstances. So, there's, there's Mahuja, your first portrait of Mahuja. Um, though the book of Moses makes it clear that both Enoch and Mahuja were commanded to ascend to Mount Simeon, turn ye, using a plural pronoun. Now, the book of Moses isn't always consistent, but let's take it as being consistent here. They were both invited to go up further, up the mountain, further in the ordinances, we might say. It seems that only Enoch made an immediate response. Quote, I turned and went up on the mount. Moses 7.3 relates that as Enoch stood on the mount, the heavens opened and he was clothed upon with glory. Second and third Enoch have a marvelous parallel where they actually give a detail about um, how Enoch's going to be shown the secrets of creation. And he goes first, before he goes to see the story of the creation on the big screen, he goes through a two-step initiatory procedure where he's first initiated by angels and after that by the Lord himself. In Second Enoch, this is how they do it. Uh, he talks about uh, God commanded the angels to, quote, extract Enoch from his earthly clothing and anoint him with my delightful oil and put him in the clothes of my glory, end of quote. Third Enoch tells us that after Enoch was changed, he resembled God so exactly that he was mistaken for them. Um, so we'll just, uh, there's much more we could say there, but we'll move on. Now, Mahaway does not follow. As he departed, in fact... Enoch, in the Book of Giants, seems to be rather sad, the best, what most commentators will say. He poignantly punctuates his final call to persuade Mahaway with a reference to Mahaway's parentage. I would get a little choked up on this. Uh, I, just, I just got a lot of sympathy for wish for Mahaway. This is what Enoch says to him. I call you, O son of Virabdad. I know this, you are like some of them. 
The statement proves to be a portentous warning. The sense of warning seems to be, you are too much like some of them. In other words, Mahaway, in his seeming reluctance to fully embrace Enoch's call, dangerously resembled the wicked faction of the Gibberim. If additional speculation can be tolerated at least a little bit, the ending of the BG story of Mahaway and Mahuja might be seen as a sort of parable that evokes the themes of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Like the rich young ruler, we might say in modern terms that Mahuja Mahaway was offered the gift of eternal life if he would follow the path he had begun as a disciple of Enoch to its end through complete obedience to the law of consecration, as eventually observed by Enoch's people, we should note. In the original manuscript, they cried together on the Lord in a very sacred place where Enoch called him then very affectionately. Eric, uh, that's a quote from the text. And in sorrow warned him that he was too much like the wicked Gibberim. It seems that Mahuja or Mahaway, I always wondered what happened to him. His the Book of Giants tells us, we think. He ultimately sided with Enoch's wicked opponents and perished with them. Book of Giants records these words as a lament for Mahaway's violent death. Quote, Slain, slain, was that angel who was great, that messenger who they had. Dead were those who were joined with flesh. You know, this is a digression. I'm going to go into it anyway. Um, as I was thinking about the death of Mahaway the other day, as you can tell, that just really saddens me. I was impressed with the thought that one never wants to leave this life without having accomplished his work on the earth. At one point in Hugh Nibley's life, since we're on a Nibley theme, I thought I'd just share this thought. He, is, he was uh, promised in a priesthood blessing that he would live to complete his work. So as he continued his work on his magnum opus, his final magnum opus, one eternal round, um, it stretched from years into decades. He sometimes say, half in jest, half in earnestness, that his delays in finishing the manuscript were what was keeping him alive. Finally, one day, to everyone's surprise, he seems to have been divinely persuaded to let some of his friends take the dozens of boxes that contained the overlapping manuscripts of the book. It seems that he had at last realized that his book was not the unfinished work that his life had been prolonged to complete, but rather it was something else, something very different. His friend Lewis Midgley recounts the following incident, by the way, in, in here. Quote, Phyllis called me and urged me to visit her husband. I did. And we talked. He was in a hospital bed. He could hardly speak. This is not, of course, Louis Mitchie. This is uh, his son Alex and their, his, Alex's daughter, but it's a similar scene. He could hardly speak. He'd mumble, and we'd talk back and forth. Soon, two Relief Society sisters showed up on the door. They had brought him dinner. They rushed over and hugged him and kissed him, and he just wept. When they left, Phyllis asked me, Did you notice that? I said, said Louis Mitchley. Yes, I did. Have you ever seen my husband show emotion? I answered, no, never. He grew up in a very Victorian home, as you know. Phyllis said that he couldn't show emotion, but when he was reduced to lying there, hardly able to talk, he would say to her, Phyllis, I've been kept after school by the Lord so I could learn a lesson that I needed to learn before I passed away. There's uh, the lesson he learned. And, and I love this little journal entry about the same time from Shirley Ricks about the time when uh, same time as when uh, that he gave up his books and he had a special divine manifestation. By the way, you'll see that next Thursday in a blog, uh, Brent Hall's account of that, what uh, we know about what Nibley saw in his second uh, divine encounter. Brother Nibley said he didn't sleep a wink last night and that he knew where he was going and what the purpose of everything was. Brent ventured to ask Brent Hall, so Brother Nibley, can you share with us what that purpose is? He paused and replied, Joy. 
He went, then went on to explain that the glory of God is intelligence, that we have great intelligence when we pass on. That intelligence allows us to solve problems, which in turn brings us joy. He told us not to worry a minute about what was going to happen after this life. He is actually looking forward to it. He said at one point, I could go this morning or this evening or even tomorrow. He sounded very pleased with the prospect. Anyway, let's all get our mission accomplished in this life before we pass on. But sometimes it's hard to know what that mission is. We prefer some missions better than others, don't we? So we have time for just one more glimpse of a scene from the epic story of Enoch. Wish we could do more, uh, but we'll have that book, Enoch and the Gathering of Zion, hopefully soon. Um, the Gathering of the Righteous uh, and the Ascent of Enoch's People. You'll recall that the righteous were brought to a place of safety in the book of Moses, where, quote, the Lord came and dwelled with his people, and the Lord called his people Zion. According to the book of Giants, four angels ultimately led the wicked to their eventual destruction in the east. Whereas the right away from the sacred center, while the righteous went westward to inhabit cities near the foot of the holy mountain. Quote from the book of Giants, one half of them eastwards, the other half westwards toward the foot of Subaru Mountain into 32 towns which the living spirit had prepared for them in the beginning. When I ran across that, I was floored. The mention of divinely powered ta- prepared towns in BG, of course, re- resembles the mentions of the city of Enoch. In further detail, it parallels the book of Moses. Observe that BG, Book of Giants, describes the righteous dwelling on, quote, the skirts of four huge mountains. You see, you kind of see them there at the bottom of Mount Sumeru, the foothills. Significantly, this imagery recalls Moses 717, which relates that the righteous, quote, were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places and did flourish. Take that for what it's worth. So there you are. Um, and... Book of Giant Scholar uh, Gabor Kosa sees the 32 palaces shown on the foliage at the top of the tree-like Mount Sumeru is implying a divine association. This is reinforced by the um, presence of three divine figures in front of a much bigger 33rd palace, with the central figure seated on a lotus throne and two acolytes standing on either side. All in all, I'm still quoting Kosa, on Latter-day Saints call. All this seems to indicate the purely divine nature of the Manichaean Mount Sumeru. End of quote. In addition, Kosa sees the description of the mountain with its tree-like iconography as resonating with the description of the mountain of God and the tree of life. You can find that in Enoch writings. Going further, though, Kosa is a bit confused. He recognizes there were 32 towns at the base of the mountain but he doesn't see a, he, he, and he, there must be some kind of a connection to the 32 palaces at the top. But he says, you know, there's no text that really describes how that came to be. So he says, how can that be? Um, and then, so the palaces aren't, you know, that if those were the towns, why are they at the top of the mountain? So in trying to, trying to unravel these anomalies, we should recall that the Book of Mormon, Moses, chronicles the transformation of the earthly Zion, symbolically located in the foothills of the mountain of the Lord, into a heavenly Zion, as with the annotated figure here. You can see it um, from the foothills straight up uh, on the great elevator there. In this way, the redemptive descensus initiated by Jared and his brethren culminated in the glorious ascensus led by Enoch. Quote, and Enoch and all his people walked with God, and he dwelt in the midst of Zion. It came to pass that Zion was not, for God received it up into his own bosom, and from thence went for the saying, Zion is fled. Now, 
I've, I've speculated a lot, but let me speculate one more time. When I think about this being related to modern-day saints, um, whether by or not by sheer coincidence, the symbolic geography shared by the Manichaean Book of Giants Fragments and the Manichaean Cosmology Painter are mirrored in a general way in the itinerary of the gathering layout for Joseph Smith's city of Zion in Missouri. Isn't that interesting? Missouri of all places. This Latter-day city is described in modern scripture in close connection with descriptions of Enoch's ancient city. You look in the Doctrine and Covenants. As the righteous of Enoch's day were remembered in Book of Giants as having been led, divinely led westward, so the early saints were told by the Lord, quote, Gather ye out from the eastern lands and go ye forth into the western countries, which were, of course, in the middle of the continent, more or less. That's section 45. Moreover, in both cases, the destination was a unique, hierocentric location. For Inks people, that location was Mount Sumeru in the middle of the world map, while for the early saints, that location was Mount Zion, quote, which would be the city of New Jerusalem, a relatively central location in the North American continent. And notice all the terminology about the center stake, the center stake of Zion, and so forth. Thus, in the, uh, in the book of Moses, oh, I also notice the 24 number, numbered temples in the city, well, 32, 24, it's a little bit off, but uh, it's just kind of interesting. Could be sheer coincidence, I don't know. But in both cases, we have uh, Joseph Smith in the Revelations and the Manichaean cosmology painting uh, showing us how God dwelt in the midst literally and symbolically central in the eyes of the people. Where elsewhere, in any of the Enoch tradition, do we find anything close to the story of the gathering of Enoch's repentant converts to cities in the mountains to prepare the people for an eventual ascension to the bosom of God, only in the book of Giants and the book of Moses? Isn't that thrilling? Well, let me just close here. Um, In light of all these findings, I won't read the summary it does not seem unreasonable to conclude that an Enoch book that was buried in the rubble until 1948 and an Enoch book that was independently translated in 1830 may be related despite admittedly important differences in provenance, perspective, and contents. It is my hope that all scholars interested in the nature and origins of the Book of Moses will include such evidence of literary affinities of Moses 6 and 7 to the ancient Enoch literature as they pursue their work. I love the book of Moses. It's a joy and a privilege to live in a day when it's widely available, putting us in a position where we can sound the depths of its inspiring stories and eternal verities to our heart's content. Just as prophets have spoken of God's hand and the advance of new technology we see in our day, I believe that he's equally willing to help us in the discovery and elucidation of ancient documents that strengthen our witness and increase our understanding of Restoration Scripture. The book of Giants does both. We understand it better, and our testimony strengthen. I believe that many new discoveries relating to ancient scripture are yet to be made, and that the Lord expects us to actively seek them out, since only the Latter-day Saints hold the keys to understanding and applying them vigorously in their fullness. Now, Hugh Nibley wrote, then, that discoveries and ancient digs and ancient texts witnesses that truth restored in our day were also known in former times are, quote, a reminder to the saints that they are still expected to do their homework and may claim no special revelation or convenient handout as long as they ignore the vast treasure house of materials that God has placed within their reach, end of quote from Nibley. May we all resolve to search and understand with greater diligence, quote, the vast treasure house of materials that God has placed within our reach is my prayer. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Come on over and join me over here. 
And then you can get your brownie you get for speaking. I mean, that's... Do I have to wait to eat it? You have to wait to eat it, yes. Yeah. It's the only reason you agreed to speak here, right? So you get your brownie. <laughs> so, um, so there's a lot in the book of Moses. There's a lot in the, the, the book of the giants. The, the, uh, what, what is the one thing? I mean, if you could just summarize everything. What's the one thing you wish all Latter-day Saints knew about the Enoch material in the book of Moses? Um, I am still very much impressed by the fact that Enoch seems to be the culminating uh, story for a temple text. And it's no coincidence that we start with Adam and Eve in chapter 5, being obedient to the commandments of the Lord, having their posterity as they were commanded in the earlier chapters, and, and performing sacrifice, obedience and sacrifice, and ending uh, after having traversed all the other ones with the law of consecration in Enoch. I think if we read the book of Moses, including the story of Enoch as a temple text, it, it would be a wonderful thing. I think it shows it's a, it's a, uh, uh, I mean, it's a strong temple text, things we can learn about the temple by reading, reading that. Uh, here's another question we got. Are there any onomastic word plays with the book of Moses and the name Enoch? Oh, wow. We should have uh, Matthew Bowen here to talk about that. Um, what I recall that he taught me is that it has a lot to do with teaching, the word, the, the root, uh, roots for uh, Enoch, and initiatory. And in many ancient texts where they're doing plays on their name, he's a hierophant. That means someone who initiates others, who, who's kind of passed through the veil and has others follow him. Okay, excellent. So I happen to have this book on my lap that you also have in front of you. Could you tell the crowd what that is again? Go ahead and tell. What is it? Yes. Okay, so this is uh, the results of two conferences. I don't know if there'll be more or not. There might be, but um, talking about... Um, why those of us who contributed, and including editors such as Scott, um, believe that the Book of Moses is an ancient text. And it's not okay to just think uh, Joseph Smith made it up with a lot of nice stories. And there's evidence from everything from detailed textual work by people like John Carmack. There's uh, Elder Hafen's wonderful work in there uh, uh, from a temple text perspective. There's um, Richard Bushman's uh, talk on... Uh, comparing it to uh, the work of Eric Arbach, Mimesis, and uh, all kinds of perspectives I think you'll enjoy. I really enjoyed, as I was looking at the manuscripts and such, I really enjoyed how it talks about how the Book of Mormon is such a literary, um, such a historical book, where you have stories and histories and such. And then shortly after, almost no time at all, shortly after, Joseph Smith does the Book of Moses. And it is certainly not that kind of a story. It's much more... Um, heavenly, I don't know, you know, revelation. Doctrinal, yeah, apocalyptic, we might Apocalyptic, say. yes, and it's really fascinating. Well, I wish and we By could... the way, oh, um, um, sorry, I was going to say that. Well, that goes with what Nibley said, that whoever wrote the Book of Mormon, Moses would have had to be an even greater genius than the Book of Mormon. So I guess God in both cases. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, when people say Joseph Smith made this whole thing up, and you say, like, well, let's look at the Book of Mormon. That gives you one element and then you look at the book, book of Moses, that gives a completely different element. And then you look at the book of Abraham, and that gives, again, a completely different element. And so to be able to do all of that is just... And then you look at the Doctrine and Covenants, of course, which is different again. And I think it, people who dismiss Joseph Smith, um, it, it, it makes it 
well, it's make, makes it very difficult to dismiss him just out of hand. I wish it was more difficult to dismiss him. You than wish it was is. more difficult, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard for me to dismiss him. So I wish we had this book in the bookstore. We don't yet. Do we know when it might be coming out, roughly? So I was just waiting to see these physical copies, which I got yesterday, uh, uh, to order them, because sometimes the cover gets a little funny or whatever. Right. But uh, I just have to... Um, well, Delena can get with me after the thing, and we yes. can actually go ahead and order them today, any that she wants. And the Kindle versions are already up on Amazon, and the PDF, she already we're has gonna, a copy. We're just, I was just going to say, we do have the PDF version up in our bookstore online. So if you want to download this book uh, in a PDF version, you can just go to the fair, latterdaysaint.org bookstore, and you can download it uh, as of about 10 minutes ago. We just got Ooh. it up there. Yeah. So. Thank you, Scott. Thank yeah. you, Delena, and everybody. So, so it's good. So we look forward to having this. We'll make sure we let everyone know when this comes out. Um, in, I mean, once we get it in our bookstore, and so that people can order it at our at our bookstore. And thank you for all that you do. I know you you do a lot uh, with interpreter and a lot lot with this. I think that uh, your leadership on the Book of Moses scholarship has been outstanding. So thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to have you as a friend, Scott. So.